0: Welcome back to Startups for the Rest of Us. I'm Rob Walling. I'm your host this week and every week. This week I speak with Derek Reimer. He's a fan favorite guest on this show. He is the founder of SavvyCal, what I call the best scheduling link on the internet. And today we answer a handful of listener questions from a single listener, a bit about UX design, how to prioritize and build features that scale, We talk at the end, there's a bonus question about podcasting and just how to get better at that. All in all, it's a, I think of really informative and casual conversation between Derek Grimer and myself. Derek and I have known each other for, I don't know, 14 years or something. So these episodes flow very naturally and, uh... I feel like the, hopefully the content in this episode in thinking about product decisions and UX paradigms and just we relive some moments from building drip as well. Hopefully these are inspirational as well as provide you with some, you know, actionable things that you can implement in your own entrepreneurial journey. Before we dive into that, tickets for MicroConf US in Atlanta next April, 2024, are on sale. This event will sell out. If you're thinking about coming to Atlanta April 21st through the 23rd to see me co-host this event with Leanna Patch and to see speakers like myself, Rand Fishkin, and several others, head to microconf.com US to grab your ticket before they sell out. We had an amazing event just a few months ago in Denver and I expect the event in Atlanta to be no different. So microconf.com slash US to grab your ticket today. So with that, let's dive right into my conversation. Derek Reimer, thanks for joining me on Startups for the Rest of Us. Thanks for having me back. It's always a pleasure. Yeah, it's good, man. It's good to catch up with you. I have several questions today from a long-time listener, Alan King. He's a multi-time microconf attendee. And he pinged me with some questions and eventually I said, you know what, just record him as audio. Derek and I, Derek's coming back on the show anyways. You know, I like having him on. So let's talk through them. A lot of these are going to be around UX design, attacking different verticals, stuff based on your experience and knowledge. So with that, Let's roll into our first question.
1: Aloha, Rob. Alan King here with Funjoin.com. I'm a loyal listener, big evangelist, and fellow Jedi Master in practice, of course. What are the top three things that a senior UX designer needs to consider when scaling a product like Drip?
0: So when Alan asks this... I think less about scaling throughput of billions of records or rows. I think as an app scales to many users uh, with disparate experience and technology level, or I think of even how do you scale this to different use cases? So, how did Drip serve bloggers and SaaS founders? And we had some media brands on it, we had an e-com, we had, you know, that, like that's a, a form of scaling, right? And even just functionality, like if you know you're going to become a complicated app, or you kind of already are, how do you allow that to happen without having a terrible user experience? <clears throat> Salesforce, I'm looking at you, you know, it's like that kind of stuff, right, where it's just bloat and all that. How do you think about this? And whether we do top three or you know, whatever it is, Like, what, what are the things that you're thinking about? And I know the answer because you and I did this for years, but I, <laughs> I'm fascinated to hear what you're going to say.
2: Yeah, it's a, this is a, a big question and a really tricky one because as you mentioned, just you know as an example, something like a sales force, um, it's really difficult. you know. And the, some of the most successful software products in the world in terms of revenue or market share actually do a pretty poor job at this and end up having to fall back on a lot of training or hand-holding or just, you know, like at a certain point, a lot of these products end up having their own kind of university or training program with certified people to just help people wrap their minds around how to actually use the thing. So, I mean, part of this is, is there's always going to be this tension of at a certain level of scale and complexity you're just going to find there's more and more kind of support burden and training and and supplementary things that, that need to go along with it. But I still think it's a worthy ideal to try to, try to architect your product as well as you can so that you, people don't feel like they have to constantly be reading the docs or asking support or whatever. So all that to say, I think a couple of things come to mind. Uh, I remember when we first hired our first outside designer, besides me at Drip, <laughs> post-acquisition, One of the first things he did was starting to think about the design of the application more as a design system. I think before that point, we were sort of each interface that we built was sort of an ad hoc thing, it was sort of its own creation. I think in the early days of building a product, that's just kind of that's how i've found things naturally happen like you don't really know how the product's going to take shape like what do the settings screens look like when there's five pages of them and a bunch of different sections i mean early on you usually have a page of settings and so you kind of you kind of start with just what you need to begin with and you kind of design that interface ad hoc and then then you realize okay i need to add another tab here and like what are the pieces that are that are actually reusable so we're not having to constantly rethink like okay now we have a new setting section how do we how do we approach designing this are we using checkboxes or toggles are we using native dropdowns do we have a custom drop down that has you know more information stuffed into it and before you know it if you're not thinking in terms of a design system then you can end up with sort of a hodgepodge of different different choices that don't really speak the same design language so it can be kind of confusing and it could also be a lot of effort for your team to if every single interface requires you to kind of think from the ground up how this is going to look what components you're going to use it just becomes really difficult to, to maintain difficult to scale and costly because you're doing a lot of repeat work so something that i mean a design system i think it doesn't necessarily have to be like what you see some of the bigger companies or bigger startups doing like i think airbnb is an example that they have like a huge website that's just all of their component libraries and everything is is parameterized and and it's like they almost built their own custom library of stuff and i think other companies tend to do this when you're small that's way overkill and i think we had something sort of that we could gradually build out. So I think he started with like a single page, Brian, our first designer, started with like a single page, like let's just standardize our buttons, form elements. When we display a table, like, unless it's a really, really custom thing, we can just kind of use this standard design and banners and icons. So like we, we just sort of started to standardize these elements. It made the, the process of building new interfaces a lot quicker. So that's probably my first, my first thing.
0: That's like solid gold advice right there. And it's funny cuz I had forgot I had forgotten that. So I jotted notes of my own things and it's super tactical things. But that is when he says top 3 piece of advice, that is that's the top 3, just to have some type of design language. And I remember cuz the way we got that far was you were the only designer. And so everything you designed, you're like, I remembered I put it over on this page, copy, paste. Gonna submit. But the moment we had two designers, that doesn't work anymore because they don't remember that you put the toggle over here, you had the multi-select or whatever, right? So that's what, it was his job to go through and look at all the work you did and say, let's put it into this single kind of internal knowledge base thing, if I remember. I don't remember what the software was, but it was something. And like you said, it was pretty lightweight and it was built out as we went because that was something that you and I, I think, for the betterment of everything, our, we were pretty resistant to heavy process and heavy. Like, we're not going to build out all these UI components, custom drip dash whatevers, right? Because it's like we we don't have the the bandwidth for that. Even even with the team size, we did.
2: A couple a couple like kind of tactical things to add to this bullet point, I think, too. Because and this, these are things that I'm thinking about. Right, as I'm building Savvy Cal, we're still very small. I do most of the design work, but I am keeping in mind, like you know, ideally, I want my developer to be able to take a first crack at an interface and be able to pull things kind of off the shelf that we already have designed. And I may need to go through and do a design pass on it to make it kind of pixel perfect or whatever. But it's it's similar to when you're thinking about architecting a good code base for the, the user experience side of things, you have similar, you can think about it similarly where you kind of abstract you take pieces that are reusable and you, you're not re- repeating yourself over and over again. So depending on what your front end technologies are, if you're using React, for example, then you can start to build out a a directory of React components that are kind of generically named that you can use. And those would hopefully bundle in kind of the style parameters that you're using. I love Tailwind CSS. So there's a reason why it's become so wickedly popular, I think, is because it gives you sort of a the fundamentals for, for building out your own design system And it kind of eliminates, like at a minimum it gives you sort of units for putting margin and padding on things, which seems small. But like being able to just say like we always use a margin three to space elements out in a form, like it's a lot better than saying, making sure that you put margin 13 pixels or whatever it would end up being. You know, you end up with some 12 pixels in there and some 16 pixels. And if you're just making these little like visual tweaks all the time, then you're ending up with a lot of inconsistency. So things like utility styles like TIL and CSS can help you kind of constrain the number of choices you're making all the time.
0: Very nice. You want to dive into your number two? Sure.
2: Number two, this is sort of a little bit amorphous, but thought about it as just like understanding how customers are actually using the product. Because I think I I find myself occasionally getting bitten by this, where it's like I'm I hear a use case and I kind of know fundamentally what what we need to accomplish, but it's so easy to get the flow wrong where you realize like the way that people are actually expecting to use this is they want to, I'll just give an example. Like People will often say, okay, I'm going to share a scheduling link with somebody and I want to propose some times. But they usually go through the process of wanting to maybe edit the link and then go preview it and then from the preview page go and propose times. And if I don't have a proposed times button on the preview page, then I'm requiring them to click back through to a different part of the application to get to that thing. So there's these friction points that, you know, that's that's not a huge deal, but they can start to add up over time to where people gain this perception that your software is clunky or like the things that they're expecting to be there are not in the place that they're expecting them to be. And a lot of times these insights don't come unless you're actually trying to get this qualitative data from customers and there's a few different ways that i've seen people do this we used to use full story i think was that that software that i mean it's it's a little dicey from a privacy perspective i think there's some things you can do to to like black out the screen to hide personal information or whatever but we used to literally have like a tv screen up in the office remember this and yep we would be just You could just walk by and watch customers actually step through the interfaces. And it was so fascinating to see when people would, would just get stuck on a page and the cursor would kind of move around and you could tell they're confused. And that kind of stuff is gold for figuring out. What are the friction points? How can you make this more intuitive?
0: I like that one a lot. And I think you had said before we hit record, you're like, some of these feel like they might be obvious or they've been said before. And it's like, yeah, kind of in different ways, but this, this stuff bears repeating it's that important it's like we as technical folks and i don't even mean developers i just mean product people who know how to use products we have a very high ability to just learn stuff really quickly and our most of our users do not unless you're serving other product people and it's so easy to forget that like my dad doesn't know like when i say what's your web browser he's like I, do you mean my firefox like he doesn't know what he doesn't know what that term means right and, and he's 80 years old, so that's just the way it is. And it's, we can easily forget that we have the curse of knowledge. I want to piggyback on that a little bit with something that's similar but different. It's not exactly what you said. And I want to give an example. And, and the thing I'm trying to communicate or my point here is also been said on this podcast, but it's, it's listen to your customers' problems but not their solutions. Okay, so learning how they talk about it, what they're actually trying to do. What are you trying to do with that? What are you actually trying to do with that? Like, what's the big picture you're trying to do with that? Because usually they're not even in the the right neighborhood of the application to do what they want to do, and they want you to add a checkbox and a dropdown on this page. You're like, this makes no sense to me. But it turns out, oh, if we go to this settings page, we can add something. They're completely different side if you actually know what they want to do. And I want to bring up the example, one of my favorite examples, Derek. All right, so if you log into Drip or if you use any type of email marketing software where you have... A sequence of emails. We used to call them campaigns. And so you have a table view. And let's say you have five or six emails in a row, and it's like one is welcome. And then second is, hey, you downloaded a sample chapter of my book. And the third is, what did you think of the sample chapter? You know, and they're sent days apart on a schedule, right? Pretty simple. It's in a lot of pieces of software. We used to get a lot of requests for people saying, in between the first email and the second email, can you add a button or, or an option to where I can put an if-then-else statement, like if they have this tag? Then I want to send him a different email, right? Or skip the next one in the sequence or add a label or just do something, right? Can you add a checkbox that allows me right in that? And it was always like, this is interesting. They, this person obviously has a problem. They have a problem, but their, their solution is catastrophic as a product person because there's no way if you if we listen to their solution, it would have just been a spaghetti code mess, right? Or a, a visual Talk about technical debt. Visual technical debt is brutal, right? It's hard to solve. And we heard those for months and months. And we were like, I don't know what the solution is. Maybe we should build one of these things. I don't know. And you remember what the solution was after like a year of hearing these? It was building workflows. Workflows, yeah. Yeah, it was a completely different paradigm. It was us saying, wait a minute, we need a visual builder where people can put a box on a thing that sends an email and then have a split. And if then, this and that, right? It was a whole other Feature And we still kept the, the campaigns in the table view as well, right? the sequence, because a lot of people were like, it's a clean view, and if you're just sending stuff in a certain order, it's really nice to have that sequence actually embedded in a workflow. Because there were competitors of ours where if you wanted to send 10 emails a day apart, remember you were adding 10 different boxes to this visual, it was very cumbersome, and ours was actually a more elegant solution. So that's what I want to bring up. And this is just one example, if you listen to this podcast, you've definitely heard that uh, paradigm before.
2: Yeah, and I think that's especially applicable to what Alan's describing here, where I think he's he's kind of getting at, you know, he, he's working on a product that serves a lot of different kind of use cases. So you're going to hear, especially in this case where you're pretty horizontal, you're going to hear really strong opinions from customers phrased in the way that they're used to solving the problem. And the, the trickiest part about building a horizontal product is that you're trying to look for the, what's the abstraction between these kind of disparate requests that are sort of pointing to the same thing but they're pointing to it in a different way and can we figure out a solution that sort of satisfies the verticals that we want to hit on but without it being too, too specific to one where you end up with, with something that only applies to a small number of customers. And that's, it's hard, it's very difficult but that's the challenge.
0: Okay, so to wrap up this topic I actually have two more, more tactical things maybe that I want to throw out. One is pay more attention to naming than you think you should just naming any anything that appears in a top nav any label on anything you and i used to sit in front of that whiteboard at the first bitwise building in fresno and when we were building automations and tags and events and labels and custom feed, you know all that stuff we wrote it all out whiteboard whiteboard we were in there for hours Saying okay, what are the, first? What are the paradigms? Let's us get our head around them. How technically, what they're going to do? What are they going to do in the UI? Just mentally. All right, I think that makes sense. Name value pairs versus things with a date. Right, that's a custom field versus an event. And then we said, what do we call these? What do we call them? And we would hours just agonizing. We've got to brainstorm. Well, what does the rest of the industry call them? Do we want to be in line with that? right? If MailChimp calls them this thing and, and Infusionsoft, which is now called Keep, I believe, if they call them this thing, but what if that's a really bad name? Like Infusionsoft named their stuff poorly. And so I, a lot of times was just like, that's not actually what this is. But they did it. And so people thought that that name meant that thing. And so we were trying to stay in line with them, like tags. Okay.
2: Everybody knows what a tag is. I'm actually curious what, if you feel like, because that, that was something I remember, what was it? Like a campaign in MailChimp, was actually a broadcast, and we called them broadcasts, and then our campaigns were sequences, and theirs were called, what, autoresponders or something? Yep. And I remember there was friction around that. Do you, I actually don't know the answer to this, do you regret how we chose to originally name things, or do you think, like, is there wisdom in just staying in line with the bad industry names? For certain things, or is it worth fighting back and, and naming well?
0: <laughs> here's the here's the thing. I think the advantage Alan has is I don't think there's a there's a MailChimp or a Salesforce in his space. You know, I don't know of one, so he probably has more flexibility than we did naming. But to answer your question directly, I couldn't have lived with myself if we called broadcast emails campaigns. That is not, <laughs> not what that is. Um, it but yeah. it would have bothered me every day I logged in because I would have been like, yeah. So in order. To, get, to have MailChimp people get an easier you know, way when they start using our product, we did this. Now, with that said, have you logged into Drip lately? You go to campaigns, and then there's like a drop-down list with, I think, three different things. And there's single email campaigns, email sequence campaigns, and I believe it's like a website campaign, something like that. I'm messing up the naming, but you get the idea. They grouped them under that same thing. Probably because MailChimp and, and others did it, so... I don't know, man, this is, that, this is that hard part of like you're a product person, you're so opinionated and taste. I want to really love what we build, but it's the intention with industry norms, ease of onboarding, ease of support. That's exactly what we're saying here, right? Yeah. All right, last thing I want to chime in. This is so tactical, so we'll, we'll go real quick on it. Hiding features. If you have features that people request and you're like, boy, only one vertical uses this, or even this whole screen or this whole section you can just you can build versions of your application that just hide a bunch of stuff from certain people or only show it to a certain there's a feature flag there's a flag on their record right and you could if i had three verticals or four verticals i was serving that really were different because we had a lot of verticals using drip but they weren't we figured out a way to generalize everything if i really needed the naming to be different and it, let's say realtors have clients and so-and-so has customers, whatever, like it's it's naming of, of labels or of top nav stuff, I would consider having just a different type of account. And this is a realtor account versus a brick-and-mortar account. I don't know. We didn't have to do it, but having that that bit. But the example that I actually want to bring up of hiding features is the feature we didn't want to build, but people were requesting it. You know what I'm going to say? RSS to email. Yeah, I hate that. Where it's like, well, I have this blog and I'm publishing stuff anyway and I want an email to go out for each one. And it's like, that's not a very good way to do email marketing. But a bunch of people wanted it. So we built it and only the people that had requested it, we checked checkbox and they saw it. And then over the course of years, and we had a KB article about it. I think by the time we left, like 50 people had access to it out of tens of thousands of users.
2: It was such an interesting one because... Yeah, if the demand had been lukewarm, we probably would have just said like, sorry, we don't we're not we don't have it. But I feel like at the time, maybe it was like AWeber or one of those kind of older school ones, like everybody who was using that publishing workflow relied on the RSS to email and it was just like a hard blocker for them Yep, for them to switch. I don't actually don't know. Maybe other maybe people are still using that, but I feel like RSS is sort of Become less of the less integral to the publishing workflow, and now there's Ghost, and there's these, these like the email sending platforms are trying to become more of the of the publishing platform also. But so like the trends have shifted, and yeah, there 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 probably still remains a small contingent of people who love that magical feature that just automatically sends emails when the RSS feed updates. But yeah, it was a real nightmare to maintain.
0: Yep, it was a pain. And so you might ask, well, why did you build it then? And it's exactly what you said. We were literally losing deals over just that. And they were significant deals. They were hundreds of dollars a month, obviously thousands of dollars in ACV at a time when we were, I think we built it when we were 20 to 30K MRR. And I knew that there were thousands of dollars of MRR, at least a few thousand that we could get with it. And so it became that, I don't want to build this, but I am going to grit my teeth and build this, but I'm going to hide it just to try it. Cause I just don't, I don't want to support it for what will wound up being thousands, tens of thousands of people. I don't want I don't want to promote it as a, a good email marketing practice. Finding the perfect software engineer for your team can feel like looking for a needle in a haystack, and the process can quickly become overwhelming. But what if you had a partner who could provide you with over 1,000 on-demand, vetted, senior results-oriented developers who are passionate about helping you succeed? And all that at competitive rates. Meet Lemon.io. They only offer handpicked developers with three or more years of experience and strong, proven portfolios. With Lemon.io, you can have an engineer start working on your project within a week instead of months. Plus, you won't waste your time on candidates who aren't qualified. Lemon.io gives you easy access to global talent without scouring countless job boards, and it's more affordable than hiring local talent. And if anything goes wrong, Lemon.io offers swift replacements, so it's kind of like hiring with a warranty. If you need to grow your engineering team or delegate some work, give Lemon.io a try. Learn more by visiting Lemon.io slash startups and find your perfect developer or tech team in 48 hours or less. As a bonus for our podcast listeners, get a 15% discount on your first four weeks of working with a developer. Stop burning money. Hire devs smarter. Visit Lemon.io slash startups. With that, let's roll into Alan's second question.
1: Also, do you have any suggestions on best practices to scale new products that serve different verticals once your main PMF has been secured and profitable?
0: We've already talked a little bit about if it's not an independent product but actually keeping it as one, right? How how you might think about either generalizing things or having different account types that like show different functionality. I will be honest upfront, I wouldn't add multiple products unless I really, really, really needed to, I would hold off. This is like that thing of, of translating my product into other languages, like into Spanish and German. It's just usually, can't I just find more customers of this type? Like, have I maxed out the entire market? And I find that folks who want to launch additional products, it's just so much more work than you think it is. So that's kind of a blanket thing. I'm not saying don't ever do it, and we can still answer the question, but that's kind of my overall opinion on this topic.
2: Yeah, I think as we riff on this we can maybe come to some some thoughts about how to do this well, but I agree that, you know, it sounds like he already acknowledges that this is it's really difficult to serve a lot of different verticals and keep everybody happy at the same time. So like my gut is like just from a strategic standpoint as he's thinking about like all right, we're we're continuing to grow the business. We work really well for a bunch of these people. I'm sure he's finding some of these market segments are just not as like the customer type is just not the type that he wants to serve. Hopefully, so hopefully has some clarity around that. Like, even though they're making it work, like, does it feel like you're fighting against, like they're constantly kind of dissatisfied to the point where like you're the way you want to take the product and the vision you have for it just doesn't really seem to overlap with what this one particular use case is. Then I would urge you to consider like just narrowing away from that and trying to, Trying to f- to identify who are the few, and and hopefully you can find enough commonality between their use cases that that you can sort of have a roadmap that is generally speaking to the needs for all of those all of those segments. Yeah, so those are my kind of initial thoughts on on just like narrowing focus a bit.
0: Yeah, narrowing focus I think is what I would try to do as much as possible, and to not serve. I mean, by the time again, if you're serving four or five verticals, but it's all within the same app and generalizable, that's fine, right? But it's when you start, you have ten different kind of use cases, and you really need ten different apps or or this component. You know, I think of HubSpot with modules and Salesforce and modules that you add on and remove. And maybe that's the maybe that's the answer, right? Is that they're truly? I was talking about having account types earlier that just hide and show stuff automatically, but that can easily turn into a A paid add-on for this extra module, Um, and that's that's a pattern that we see, right? With with enterprise software, to me, it it just feels complicated when you are early. That feels complicated. I don't see most companies below seven-figure ARR trying to do that, and and it's like, is that a sign that either you are trying to do too much, you know, you are taking just a little too big of a bite at the apple, or you're not saying no to enough things. And just being like, you know what, we have one customer type or two or three that work. And we're, unfortunately, we're just not going to serve this other market. I don't know, you know, without more information, I can't, obviously can't give like specific advice, but it's an unusual pattern. It, it, there's a little yellow flag for me, if, if you're trying to solve the problem in the way that you're describing it, where it's like, I want all these modules. And I'm, again, I'm assuming Alan's early
2: stage, we don't know his revenue. Yeah, I think like what we kind of touched on earlier, where if if the main difference is just like nomenclature, for example, then that feels like something that's solvable. Even if it's like I've seen I've seen products do this, like I think Stripe does this with their checkout product, where it's like, do you want the button, the confirmation button, to say, you know, purchase product, or should it be subscribe, or should it be, you know, they have like different ways to customize what the like fulfillment button says to indicate the type of thing. I it's something we've considered with SavvyCal because we generally refer to things as meetings, but that's not always the intention. Like it's not always a meeting. Maybe think of it more like a a session or I don't know. There's just like different kind of ways to identify the thing. And if if that's really the main difference but all the other mechanics are the same, then then that seems reasonable to try to like figure out a way to to allow that level of customization but to just give another example that something that we bump up against we have a certain type of customer that loves our core functionality but then they want this whole sort of like buy a pack of time slots and then you can you can eat away at your balance of credits that you've purchased for a certain number of meetings and maybe you want those recurring and it starts to just spider out into this whole separate thing and it's it's not something i'm necessarily opposed to doing but that that sort of thing we've really been careful in kind of gathering customer requests and insights and really thinking hard about it like can can we see a world where it makes sense to add this on to the existing product, It, uh, in some ways it almost feels like a completely separate product or a completely separate module where it's like, okay, now you basically have sort of a commerce tab of some kind where you have storing a lot of information about customers who have bought a certain number of, of time slots and now you need to manage state around that. And it just, yeah. So it's like a huge kind of build out like that. We're very hesitant to do unless... Unless we feel like we can actually be competitive in that area, and it won't wreck the user experience for the rest of the product, which is yeah a big consideration. You don't want to feel like it's it's easy to get to the place where you used to be the simple, elegant solution, and now people start saying, "Well, it's sure, sure feeling complicated over there," you know. And that's a you never want to get to that place if if you can at all help it. <laughs>
0: Yeah, and that's where I think, I like that example you brought up, because I think of Squarespace, which started off as a website builder, but now like Squarespace commerce is a, is a big thing, and it's, it's a decent shopping cart. It's not the most sophisticated, but like I use it to sell the SaaS playbook. right? So SaaSplaybook.com is hosted on Squarespace. And then I have other sites that don't have commerce built in. And there's a selling thing in the left nav. And if I click it and I don't have the commerce, it just says, oh, you could sell stuff if you wanted, click here to upgrade. And if I have a cart and I have sales and I click in, it's my whole dashboard. And you could easily make it that if I didn't have selling, it just didn't appear on the left nav. right? That'd be, that'd be the thing, is like, how modular can you make this? And keeping, of course, I mean, it goes without saying, keeping consistent like UI and UX paradigms per your first, you know, the first like thing to do.
2: Yeah, I actually have one other, one other thought that just occurred to me too. If you already have some existing patterns on how you like, integrate, you build external integrations with other platforms. I don't know if Alan has any of those at this point. I'm sure he does um, with calendars or whatever, you know? So you think about how you generally build those into your product. Like for in SavvyCal, for example, we have on links, we have sort of a little automation or integrations area and you can basically install an external app. So like if you want to send... If you want to send booking information over to HubSpot, you can click a little drop down, say add an integration, and then you know, send contacts to HubSpot. And you install that and there's a little bit of configuration, choose your account, connect to your HubSpot account, whatever. And now you have this sort of modular connection between a scheduling link and your CRM. And it would be it is interesting to think about can you apply those similar patterns, similar ways you would think about integrating with external products, but do that with your own internal modules as well. And I think there's a lot of patterns you can sort of, even though you know, I think you wouldn't want a whole separate app that you log into, ideally it would be a module of some kind inside of your core monolithic application, but can you treat it as, as you would almost an in external integration if it's, if it's separated enough?
0: I think that's a very elegant way to think about it. All right, let's dive into Alan's third and final question, but he, he actually sent me a relevant super bonus question that maybe if we have time we'll answer at the end.
1: Lastly, does Derek Reimer have any processes that he'd like to share for creating articles, change logs, and updating content when it becomes dated? I'm a big fan of his knowledge base and his SavvyCal product as a whole. I love the work you both did on Drip, and I'm very grateful for all the work you've done for our community. Looking forward to MicroConf this year. Thank
2: you, thank you, thank you. Aloha from Hawaii. Peace. See you soon. So I use um, Help Scout's knowledge base feature, um, which is pretty nice because it integrates deeply with their Beacon widget. So when you, when someone go, clicks the Help tab in SavvyCal, it opens the Beacon, and they can start to type a question, and we can surface knowledge base articles to them. And if those don't satisfy their question, then they can send an email to us. So that kind of integration is is pretty nice. Um, I think Alan's using Intercom, maybe, and. Um, I think they have a very similar, similar type of thing. So it looks like, I mean, for I took a peek at, at Alan's knowledge base and it looks like you're off to a really good start on that. But yeah, we generally when when building any feature of substance that's not a tiny thing, I usually default to wanting to publish some kind of knowledge base article, something very specific to to the feature. And the title is usually, you know. Something. It's not like I'm trying to describe an entire subsystem in one article. We keep them pretty, pretty granular, almost phrased like the answer to a question if someone was asking the question. And for most projects, we just drop a ticket in in the project project management system for that. So the project is not considered done until we have a little KB article. And I also have speaking of component libraries, like a lot of the settings sections that we have, we just default to having like a little info icon in the product that. Requires a URL to a KB article, so it's a good forcing function for us to make sure that you know we have somewhere to send them if they were to click the info icon uh, to learn more about the feature. And I also like to I use Headway for our change log, and we have a little widget in the app. It's that standard pattern when there's something new. It's like a little red red dot with a number on it, and you can click it, and it shows the little the top five things in the change log. Um, and that's a just a helpful way to surface new stuff. I mean, that's it's hard to keep new customers abreast of of features and also existing customers who aren't necessarily receiving onboarding sequences and things you know like it's it's hard to keep them aware of new stuff happening. so I feel like that's that's a good touch point for sure. and similar to the KB articles we generally um, as part of the launch plan for any feature bias towards you know just dropping something in the change log and I try to keep those really really concise like one or two sentences, and I have a little a little template. So I usually try to include a screenshot, something that represents the feature. And yeah, it doesn't, it's not a huge burden because we just, you know, we plan on keeping those short, try to speak to how this improves the customer's life. So like describe the the functionality of the feature and also why they should care in just a couple sentences. And uh, and yeah, that's just kind of integrated into our process.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, a master class. And how to maintain your KB. <laughs> Thank you, sir. We should
2: record that, sell it as a course. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. It's is a really good, thorough answer. So very concise. And I think like, oh, another note on keeping things up to date. I mean, that is that's hard. I think there's probably some stuff in our knowledge base that's a little bit outdated. And if and if it's just small like changes to the UI, I don't think it is a huge stumbling block. So we don't We're not necessarily keeping on top of every single screenshot to make sure it looks identical to the current UI, but what we do is empower support agents to make any changes to the knowledge base at any time. So if they are sharing a KB article, which we often do in support, like we'll explain how something works, but then we'll also include a a link to the knowledge base article because it usually has just a little bit more expansive detail than than the specific response. I think our support guys are used to looking at the knowledge base article to make sure it's relevant. And if they notice something that's out of date, like they're spending a lot of time in the product helping diagnose things for customers or explain things. So they usually will spot if something's out of date and they can just grab a new screenshot. I like to use clean shot but there's a bunch of different apps that'll do that at least basically let you take a screenshot and draw an arrow like that's the that's the default way that we do stuff you know put arrows on product screenshots and those are really easy to to replace things that are a lot harder is like if you have videos that have a lot of you know shots of the product there's a much higher cost to updating those so for that reason we generally skew towards text and images which are easier to update.
0: Yeah, in the early days, getting a Loom or equivalent recorded for your support or for your KB is way faster to do. Over time, it is essentially a type of debt, video debt, documentation debt. Because we did that with Drip in the early days, right? Instead of writing a long KB article, I just record a video and it was great, and it got us going. And then we had to go back and redo, you know, basically pay. So I paid someone to redo all those and basically turn the videos into written. And that's why most KBs are written, because the video is just hard to maintain. It doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. It just know that you're going to run into some issues down the line. I like what you pointed out about keeping things up to date, that you kind of do the best you can. Because even, again... When we left Drip, it was doing tens of millions a year with tens of thousands of customers and there was still stuff that was. It just gets out of date and you just don't pick it up. So it's one thing I would, you you do your best and just know that there's going to be stuff that's out of date and it's not going to be perfect and it doesn't need to be and you can still be wildly successful. All right, you want to take a crack at this Fourth super bonus question about podcasting. I love talking about podcasting, yeah. Oh, sure. His question is, what magical wizardry secrets or dark, scary, painful pitfalls would you give to your virgin podcast selves before you got started actually podcasting? I have a couple things that come to mind. One is fewer people are going to listen to you or care about your podcast than you think, especially in the early days, and that's a good thing because you're not going to be very good when you start. I'm talking to me, by the way. So just to be clear, like me 14 years ago. Like, it's just not. You can go back and listen to the first five episodes of this show. They're not very good. Um, We don't have the energy. We're not concise enough. We're kind of, there's just a bunch of things wrong with it. The audio quality isn't very good, et cetera, et cetera. And that's okay, because I put in the reps, and eventually you get better, right? So fewer people listen to you in the early days. I stressed about it in the early days. I'm on the mic. I'm so nervous. Oh, my God. We're all going to be nervous. It's fine. Realize that fewer people listen to, and hopefully it helps you just be more of yourself, right? Second thing I want to say is the only way I know to get better at it, some people are naturally good at it. I will give them the first time they get on the mic, they're amazing. Most people that I know are not. The only way I know to get better is to practice. It's just to do a bunch of reps. And again, if you go back and listen to the show, like by the 10th or 15th episode, it's like, oh, that's not terrible. By the 30th, it's like, ooh, these guys kind of know what they do. Practice and listening to other podcasters. I would say both, because just doing the same thing over and over doesn't make you better. But I would listen to other podcasts and say, ooh, this is very entertaining all of a sudden. Why am I entertained by this? Can I do that? Does it fit to adapt that approach to my show, right? So practice and being having developing taste of what a good podcast is, I think, is a, is a thing. The third one that took me a very long time, and in fact, if you go back even I don't know how many years, but you go back six or seven years, I still wasn't doing this until, again, a few years back. But it's to have just a little more energy than you naturally would. Like if you and I, Derek, were on this call and just talking about Savvy Cal strategy or talking about Dungeons and Dragons and the Nat 20 that Darren rolled last night on his, uh, on his <laughs> persuasion check, we would, we would just be talking and having fun. Somehow, when you do that and talk naturally, you sound subdued, And with low energy, it's just this weird thing that cameras and microphones do. And so I now at this point, I naturally switch when I'm in front of a microphone, I talk just a little bit different (laughs) than when, you know, then again, if you and I were hanging out, and it's just a it's just a one notch above in energy. That was a very difficult and painful thing for me. It was very, felt very unnatural, like I was faking it, like I was not being me, like I was being hyped. Like, why am I acting like this person who's excited when I'm not actually excited? When I say, welcome back to Startup for the Rest of Us, I'm your host, Rob Waller. You know, that's how I say it now. And when I listen to, but when I say it, I'm like, ooh, that feels weird. When I listen back, I'm like, that's a good intro. And when I listen back to intros from 10 years ago, I'm like, that intro sucks. It's boring. So there's something about energy and learning how to channel it in a way that feels authentic. To me, it ha- I, I'm not on this mic if I'm not being me and trying to be authentic. But you have to be a little more energetic than I,
2: than I think you would naturally. Yeah, I think because I've heard people go too far in that direction. Where it's like, hey, I'm trying to have a radio <laughs> voice. And they talk that way the whole time. And it's like, oh, that's too much. Yeah, it's, it's too terrible. Much. It's not authentic. Right. So it's the authenticity piece, and I think, yeah, it does take practice to to figure out how to do that. I mean, I don't know any other way other than reps and listening back to yourself. I mean, so I was a very reluctant podcaster from, from day one. I mean, Ben Orenstein can can uh, attest to this, that he basically had to pull teeth to get me to agree to just first start guesting with him. And then then he was like, you want to kind of do this? for the foreseeable future and I was very hesitant because I just I didn't feel like I had a natural knack for it. I didn't think I sounded smart or funny <laughs> on on audio. It was just yeah, it took a lot of like getting past my own barriers because and it and it helped to start to hear from people like hey, I really enjoyed like that that was that was great, you know. And I was still not convinced for a long time that it was that it was any good, but I just kind of persisted through it. I think this is sort of a hack is like having a co-host that you have good rapport with. Like, is it the kind of person you could just have a, you know, 30 minute long phone conversation with and it would feel pretty natural. And like he would, or is it stilted? Because if you, if you can't have a normal conversation, it's going to be hard to have a, you know, a good podcast recording together. Because a lot of times podcasts, especially like, well, interviews and even like more conversational ones, they often end up being kind of, like I talk for a while, then I mute, and then you talk for a while, and then you mute. And I have found trying to steer it more towards feeling like a conversation, even if I'm, you know, responding with uh-huhs and things, that can all be cut in editing. So you don't have to keep all the kind of conversational connective tissue in place. But I find that the more I do that in the course of a, of a conversation over a podcast, the more authentic the edited version feels. And to that point, like good editing, like I would say if you're, if you're wanting to seriously produce a podcast, like have an editor edit out the awkward pauses and things because that makes a huge difference. I've listened to the unedited version of a podcast I've done and then the edited versions and it's way better with good editing.
0: That one didn't even occur to me because editing is just something we've done from day one. And you used to edit a lot heavier in terms of cutting out ums and ahs, there are just a lot fewer ums and ahs these days because you do it long enough and you stop, stop doing that. I want to revisit something that you touched on that is something I do and hadn't occurred to me that I would need to say it, but I call it game tape. Right When I used to play football ran track, we would watch tape of ourselves. This tape, because it was, yes, it was on a video recorder (laughs) of some sort, it was before digital, it was the 90s, people. But um, we watch game tape and be like, ooh, yeah, shouldn't have done that, oh, I could get better doing this. To me, I've listened to every episode of every podcast I've ever recorded, even the interviews, as far as I know, as long as, if people let me know that it went live, I go and listen to it. And I don't do it as some ego thing, or to say, ooh, aren't I smart? I actually listen to it to say, huh, I should have communicated that better. Or they asked me a question that I didn't know the answer to and I can feel myself kind of vamping. And I eventually get, usually get to something, but like the first 60 seconds of that was a non-answer. So I'm going to do better next time. And the other thing for me is I will listen back and be like, that was a really interesting framework that I just, it just occurred to me on the show. I said it once, I never said it again. And it's like, that should be in a book or that should be revisited on the podcast. Like I'll actually pull nuggets out of old conversations that just happened to be on tape. And so- Listening to game tape, I think the the number one reason is to get better. And you're going to cringe the first few times, for sure. But then you're going to realize, okay, so I say um too much. How do I work on saying um less?
2: Yep. And something that I discovered, too, is that I would often leave a recording session feeling like that was terrible. And then I would go back and listen, and I usually had some takeaways on things to improve like you just described but i also usually came away with the feeling that like that was not nearly as bad as i thought it was and that was a a reinforcing thing of like you know what this is yeah you're not going to be perfect at it and nobody is but this is not as bad as you as your brain was telling yourself that it was
0: that's a really good point i agree with you there any tiny city founder that comes on this show i kind of force them in a nice way i say you need to listen to this interview because And the reason I only do it for tiny seed founders is I feel like I have some sway over there, you know what I mean? Or some, like, I, some input into how they operate professionally, right? And so I'm sure not all of them do, but I really, really encourage people to do it, to listen to the interview, just to be like, oh, that part was good and that part was bad and try to evaluate it and be honest. And of course you cringe a little bit, but that's how you get better.
2: Yeah, and to tie it back home too, the same applies for your product. Watching people use your product, you're going to learn a ton. And it's one of the most painful things you and can ever so do. <laughs> Dude, no doubt. So, thanks for
0: those questions, Alan. I hope, uh, yeah, I hope our answers were helpful to you in your entrepreneurial journey. And if you're smart and you're like Alan, then you're coming to MicroConf in Atlanta here in just a couple months. It's April 21st through the 23rd, and tickets are actually going pretty fast right now. And this will sell out. I don't know when, I don't know what month it'll be, but if you're considering it, you want to head to microconf.com and pick up your ticket. I'm speaking, Rand Fishkin, Asia Aragio, Leanna Patch is co-emceeing with me. It's a, and I think we have another super special guest that Xander's waiting to announce. So yeah, grab your tickets. And Derek Reimer, sir, thanks so much for taking the time today.
2: Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me
0: dropping mad knowledge (laughs) folks want to keep up with you and they want to see the best scheduling link on the internet they can go to savvycal.com and of course follow you on twitter at derek reimer indeed thanks again to derek for coming on the show it's always great to have him and hang out for 30 or 40 minutes i hope this 30 or 40 minutes has provided you with some tactic or strategy or maybe some inspiration to think about building and growing your business this week I'll be back in your ears again next Tuesday. This is Rob Walling signing off from episode 699.